You are listening to a podcast hosted by the Food Security Subcommittee of the American Meteorological Society. The theme this year is Environmental Security, Weather, Water, and Climate for a More Secure World. We will be going around the world to better understand the impacts of extreme events and climate change on global food security and how early warning systems, agrometeorology, and effective public policy can combat food insecurity. This is your host, meteorologist Emily Niebuhr. Thank you for joining us on today's podcast. We are talking with Dr. Chris Funk, who is the director of the Climate Hazards Center at UC Santa Barbara. Thank you so much for joining us, Chris. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the great work you're involved in at the Climate Hazard Center? I am uh, Chris Funk, and I am the director uh, of the Climate Hazard Center, and I have a background in geography, physical geography, and climatology, and I work as uh, a drought early warning expert, primarily with the Salmon Early Warning Systems Network. Can you describe your role as the director of the Climate Hazard Center at UC Santa Barbara and your relationship to FuseNet. What products do you produce and who are your customers? Sure, yeah, thanks Emily, that's a a great question. Um, My role as the director of the Climate Hazard Center involves three main types of activities. I work as a scientist and author, publishing a lot of papers and a few books, focusing primarily on drought early warning, Eastern Southern African climate and climate forecasting, large-scale modes of climate variability, and climate change. Uh, I also do a lot of work with the excellent programmers here at the University of California, Santa Barbara, developing cutting-edge gridded rainfall and temperature data sets. Finally, I am a very active participant in the Famine Early Warning Systems Network's operational drought early warning activities. While sometimes it can be overwhelming, the combination of these three activities can be really exciting and productive. The operational early warning activities provide constant motivation to innovate and inspire everyone here at our group to make the best possible data sets and climate forecasts. The Climate Hazard Center has two main types of products. First are our inputs into FuseNet, the Family Early Warning System Network, uh, and also the Global Crop Monitor. And in these activities, uh, we have a really... Uh, unique and awesome partnership with regional scientists in Africa and Central America. Uh, and we provide them with a lot of analyses, data sets, and then they help FuseNet develop food security outlooks every month that in turn you know, help guide uh, really billions of dollars of, of humanitarian assistance. So it's, it's really cool we have this international collaboration. And then we uh, also, here at the center, you know, one of our big products is our very widely used 0.05 degree <laughs> gridded satellite gauge climate hazard center infrared precipitation with stations, or, or CHIRPS data product. And this is just a, a really, really, really good product for drought monitoring in places that don't have a lot of station data, which of course is typically the case. Um, in food insecure regions. 
And so, you know, we developed this product for CubeNet, but it's widely used by, by tons of people. Um, in 2019 to 21, 171 terabytes of chirp data have been downloaded in the center here from 20,000 different internet addresses. So we, we have a lot of uh, customers that we don't even know exactly who they are, but it's great to be, you know, producing um, this data, which can have such a big value out there. It sounds like you focus on academia, but have a practical connection to your users. Can you describe how you balance academia with some of the operational aspects of your work? I like to think of myself as a, a humanitarian earth scientist. You know, so I, I'm an earth scientist, but I, I want to serve humanitarian purposes. And, you know, you might think that that, that sounds kind of uh, floofy, you know, that... <laughs> that a humanitarian earth scientist wouldn't be rigorous, but it's really the, the complete opposite. You know, when you're developing, you know, scientific data products or a forecast or, you know, a theory, and you know that, you know, people's lives and livelihoods are, you know, improved if you make that product better, it really makes you want to do a good job. Um, and, you know, uh, Two relevant aspects of that has been the work that, that we've done here over the last you know, couple of years on both uh, developing improved versions of our CHIRPS product that will be coming out soon that perform better in dry areas and also improved long-lead climate forecasts that are being used right now by FuseNet to help uh, position food aid in East Africa. It's kind of hard to wear both those hats, but it's also really very exciting to see something that, you know, you develop um, go out quickly into the world and, and help people. One of the things that's been really wonderful is that over the last 20 years, I've seen this community of practice, you know, grow up around different types of, of hazard early warning. And, you know, it's been really, really neat. You know, you've got now uh, people from meteorology and climatology backgrounds that are very, you know, interested in doing applied science and um, in helping to inform societal decisions. And then at the other end, you also have, you know, a lot of uh, non-governmental organizations, uh, government agencies, you know, who are really realizing that, that you know, Climate is not something that can be ignored. It's got to be something that is factored into, um, you know, what they do. And so, you know, seeing that happen uh, has been really exciting. And I think it's a, it's a really um, interesting and rewarding place to work. In one of your papers, you state accurate and timely early warning can increase the productivity and efficiency of humanitarian assistance. Can you describe how decision-makers can use early warning information to achieve this goal? I think one of the sort of hallmarks of our work here at the center is we want to get the technical details right. We want to make a really good, you know, CHIRPS product. But we also want to think carefully about how the, the pieces fit together, you know, kind of conceptual frameworks. And... In, when you have an early warning system, you have uh, a lot of different 
interact, you know, interacting communities of practice, right? That all have to kind of work together in a coordinated way. And, and, and this is why thinking about how the pieces fit together is, is really important. You know, FuseNet has developed uh, a defense in depth kind of strategy. And defense in depth is a term from kind of cybersecurity you know, kind of things. And it's the idea that, you know, if you want to be safe, you want to have kind of multiple layers of defense. And so um, in a drought early warning context, you know, uh, the very first line of defense may be a very long lead climate forecast, which we might, which we do a lot kind of based on um, forecasts of Pacific sea surface temperatures, El Nino, La Nina, that kind of thing. And then as you get, you know, into the season, you can start using um, global climate uh, weather models and climate models to kind of give you good estimates for the next couple weeks or the next couple months. And then, you know, as you get into the season, um, we've been having a lot of success uh, with what we call early estimates, which are combinations of, you know, our church observations with downscaled weather forecasts so that we can do a really, you know, kind of great job of detecting droughts in the middle of the season. And then finally, you know, once the season is over, you can use high-resolution satellite data products, um, yield estimates, other things like that to kind of really, you know, um, get really fine detail precision uh, about where you see problems. And that kind of, you know, using those things together um, really helps humanitarian agencies because, you know, they get a very long lead time about when trouble might be coming and then find spatial detail about where trouble actually happened at the end. Can you think of an example in which your data was used in order to have a successful outcome? You know, we can use an, an example, um, the current really dire food insecurity situation in Eastern Africa. So in Ethiopia, Somalia, and Kenya right now, um, there are, there are you know, 20 million people or more who are estimated to be extremely food insecure or will soon become extremely food insecure. And, you know, part of that number uh, is related to the conflict in Ethiopia, um, but uh, a big part of it is um, droughts that have happened there. And so if we just focus on this most recent October, November, December rainy season drought that is just finished. Um, our work for FuseNet on this began in the summer uh, of 2021, where we could use forecasts of sea surface temperatures to say that it looked like there was going to be uh, a La Nina that was going to be enhanced by climate change with exceptionally warm waters in the Western Pacific that created uh, a really high probability of drought. And then as, you know, we moved into this season, we, we were able to take our CHIRPS observation, you know, and our, uh, not ours, these are NOAA down, we get them from NOAA and then downscale them, but downscaled weather forecasts 
And so, you know, at the kind of mid-season, by the end of uh, October, you know, we could say to FuseNet that it was extremely likely that this was going to end up, you know, as a very bad season. And then, you know, now uh, as the season has come to a close, um, we are working with our partners at the U.S. Geological Survey to analyze uh, vegetation data from satellites to show that in areas of Ethiopia and Somalia, you know, vegetation conditions could be the worst on record since 2003, where the record begins. Whereas in places in, in Kenya, they kind of got some unexpected rains and have a, had a lot of recovery. So we can kind of provide spatially detailed information that um, you know, is already motivating early responses in Ethiopia and Somalia. In one of your papers, you describe how global food security rests on four pillars, adequate food availability, food access, and food utilization accompanied by stable prices and incomes. Can you describe these in more detail and how meteorology and climate science play a role? Yeah, sure, sure. So, um, so food availability, you know, I think is what the first thing that most people think about, I guess, when they think about, um, you say African food security, you, you think about, uh, a farmer who, who, by the way, is, is, is more often than not female, and you know her farm, she may be farming, you know, uh, uh, an acre or two of land, maybe five acres, not a very big farm, and you know, so the food availability, you know, can be the crops that she has, usually, usually maize or sorghum, millet, and the the livestock, usually some, you know, goats and camels. And, um, maybe a cow, uh, and that's kind of what we, you know, think about as, as food availability. And then uh, food access is, you know, really uh, a huge driver uh, of food insecurity that is really related to um, uh, a household's income and prices. And so, you know, essentially, uh, famine is an economic phenomenon when people cannot purchase food. And, you know, there are kind of classic examples like famine in the turn of the century in India, where, you know, like literally a million more people died. But at the same time, India was exporting uh, food to Great Britain. So that there was food that was available but there were just, you know, millions of people who couldn't afford it. Um, and, and then, uh, you know, there's then food utilization. So how nutritious is the food that you're eating? And then finally, um, there is this pillar of stability, right? So uh, are prices of income stable? And the pieces of that puzzle that I, you know, know the most about would be the links between climate variations and food availability, food access, and then prices and incomes. And, you know, all four of those components are typically really intertwined and tend to go bad all together. So, 
you know, in Somalia right now, where I think looking at probably the fifth, you know, poor harvest in a, in a row, and food prices, you know, are going up very quickly. Um, the estimates of the current um, yields for this year appear to be like 40%, really low, the long-term mean. And so that both obviously affects availability, but then it also uh, reduces farmer incomes. And uh, a big thing for pastoralists, people who you know make a living um, uh, by raising herds of livestock and move around, are um, what's called terms of trade. So unfortunately, when you get to these situations, they're forced to sell off their livestock um, at, at really, really low prices. And you know, that just really, again, reduces their income, but also helps drive this cycle of poverty. Um, so that's uh, how climate can cause those things. But the, you know, what we were trying to figure out is how to use our information about climate to kind of um, break that cycle before it gets really bad. You have released a book, Dr. Funk's Drought, Flood, Fire, How Climate Change Contributes to Recent Catastrophes. Can you describe how climate change is contributing to these disasters, but there are also opportunities for prediction? Sure, Emily. Yeah, so this is Drought, Flood, and Fire, um, which is a, a book that I published with Cambridge Press. And the, the motivation for that book uh, originally came from some climate attribution studies that we did that, that first focused on the 2015-16 El Nino event. Uh, and that very strong El Nino impacted um, about uh, 15 million Ethiopians and pushed them into extreme food insecurity and the, the you know, worst drought in 50 years. And then there was a, a, you know, so basically that was the summer of 2015. And then in the winter of 2015-16, there was a terrible drought across Southern Africa that was also related to that very strong El Nino and that pushed some 36 million people into extreme food insecurity. And, you know, our science suggested that um, climate change had made that El Nino worse. And that seemed something that, that I found that very upsetting. Um, and, and then in 2016-17, uh, the Pacific transitioned into a, a La Nina event and the sea surface temperatures in the Western Pacific became exceptionally warm. And, you know, we did a study linking that to climate change. And uh, even though drought, flood, fire um, kind of turned into a survey of lots of different types of extremes, you know, heat waves and extreme precipitation, hurricanes, that was sort of the initial motivation for the book. And the, there's a very direct link between that motivation and improvements in our ability to do climate forecasting and prevent you know, severe food insecurity. And the secret to that is that we really need to think about climate change, or at least one of the ways we need to think about climate change is as increasing 
the energy in our oceans. So about 90% of the extra energy associated with climate change goes into the oceans, and it moves around you know, in concert with natural variability. And so, you know, when we have an El Nino, that energy moves into the equatorial eastern Pacific, you know, increasing the chances of us getting these kind of monster El Ninos. And when we get a La Nina, a lot of extra energy moves into the western Pacific, kind of enhancing the impact of La Ninas and producing um, severe droughts like we're seeing over East Africa, um, as seen over Afghanistan. And uh, when it moves over the western Indian Ocean in a positive Indian Ocean dipole event, you know, it can produce extreme flooding over East Africa like we saw in, in 2019. And so using that conceptual model and the current generation of numerical, you know, climate forecast models, we can get a really good sense of where these extreme sea surface temperatures are likely to be, you know, in the next three to eight months. And we're using that information to make pretty successful forecasts that are um, helping us anticipate food insecurity. You were the first person who made the connection between La Nina and drier conditions in Eastern Africa. Can you describe how you made this discovery and what your process was? I think it's a story really of empowerment because it, it helps us. Uh, it's an example of how thinking about climate change as a series of extremes can really lead to successful adaptation. The, the story begins back in 2002 and I was just doing something very straightforward, which was trying to assemble uh, the best possible gridded data set um, for Ethiopia. You know, just based on the, this was the most food insecure country in the world. There were very poor data sets for it. So that just seemed like a pretty useful thing to do. And as a geographer climatologist, I had the, the um, knowledge to do that kind of thing. So I was working with FuseNet and doing that. And we wanted to set up uh, a mid-season kind of monitoring uh, framework where we could look at rainfall halfway through the season and try to, you know, get a heads up on when we were likely to see, uh, you know, poor yields in the fall. And in the process of doing that, we discovered, I discovered that there had been um, big declines in the March, April, May rains in a lot of these food insecure, heavily populated areas. And, you know, essentially, kind of for the next six years or so, uh, we basically, you know, published that, studied that. But our, our conceptual framework for that was really just focused on climate change as trend, right? That there was just this kind of downward um, motion that we didn't really understand tendency. And, but then in 2008 and 2009, there were a series of La Nina related droughts in East Africa. And uh, my friend Gideon Glu, who's our regional scientist from East Africa, you know, said, noted that these frequent 
these new, uh, quote-unquote, these recent La Niñas appeared to be much more impactful in the East African Marchipo May range than, than in the past. And so, you know, that really was a turning point for us. And now we're at a point where using numerical forecasts of um, Eastern Pacific and Western Pacific sea surface temperatures, you know, we've, we're, we've been making very, very successful long-range forecasts of, of these droughts. And so in, in 2016-17, which was a La Nina, we made these forecasts successfully, but with observed sea surface temperatures. And now, last year and this year, we're making forecasts based on climate model predictions. And we have just unfortunately come through three consecutive droughts in October, November, December of 2020, March, April, May of 2021, and then October, November, December of 2021. And we've been able to anticipate those in part because of this understanding that what we're seeing is you know, natural variability uh, in the Eastern Pacific interacting with climate change in the Western Pacific, providing us with opportunities for prediction. What would you consider your greatest achievement? Our CHIRP data set, simply because it's been you know, so widely used. And there uh, was a great climatologist geographer, Kurt Wilmot, who, in, you know, in the 90s, you know, was really instrumental in creating a lot of high-quality gridded temperature and precipitation products. And I, and I got a chance to work with him very early in my career, uh, along with my advisor, Joel Michelson, who's like a expert um, geostatistician. And so I kind of naively in like 1997 set out to like make, you know, good uh, precipitation data sets that combined orography, you know, effective mountains and stations and satellites. And it really took me until about 2015 when our CHIRPS products came out to really do that well. And so that's something that I'm also, uh, you know, it feels like a great achievement. And people are downloading terabytes of your data, so that's pretty exciting. Yeah, and it's especially exciting, you know, when, you know, uh, like, it's very hard, you know, I couldn't give people in Africa, you know, very much money. But but we know that, that you know, people are you know, taking that CHIRPS data and translating it into things like agro-cultural advisories or using it to, to drive index insurance programs that, you know, help farmers manage risk. And so that's kind of, it's pretty neat, you know, and it's kind of, you know, I mean, um, it's just a few people that are producing the chirps and <laughs> it's kind of neat that, you know, just a couple people can, can really uh, produce something really useful. What has motivated you to study food security and what would you say to motivate the next generation of food security scientists? For me, I was really lucky to uh, meet a gentleman by the name of Jim Burden, who is now uh, 
the director of the Family Learning Warning System Network. And at that point, he was coming to UCSB to get his PhD. And when I learned about FuseNet and how it was using, you know, Earth Systems information to to guide humanitarian efforts, I thought, wow, that's really cool. And so I got, I kind of got hooked. And then, you know, another thing that was really motivating for me um, was uh, a chance to then, you know, interact with people in Africa, in, in Central America, um, and also from other disciplines. You know, one of the neat things about working in the early warning field in general, you know, is that to do it effectively, you pretty much have to be exposed, you know, to things outside your, your comfort zone and, and to learn how to talk to people from other disciplines. And so that's, I think, really interesting. Um, and, and, and so, you know, I think to your second question, you know, um, what I would say to the next generation of uh, food security scientists is that we can really make a difference. You know, it can be really obviously hard to be looking um, at all the world's problems, but, you know, this is a, a case where we can really make a difference and keep people's, you know, lives and livelihoods from being, you know, terribly damaged. And, you know, I know this because right now, you know, we are helping, you know, hundreds of millions of people, you know, respond to the ravages of extreme hunger. And so um, it's not an easy job, but it can be very rewarding too. You know, one of the things I think that's so exciting about the, the food security, you know, monitoring community is it provides a really, you know, excellent example of us being our best selves. You know, so you have, on the one hand, you know, really dedicated uh, scientists who are going to maybe be focused on developing, you know, numerical models or, you know, getting better satellite observations. You know, then you might have people like those at the Climate Hazard Center that kind of work as climate intermediaries. You know, kind of taking that raw data and transforming it into information like our, our drought predictions or the CHIRPS data. And then, you know, you might have groups uh, like USAID or, you know, non-governmental organizations like Mercy Corps, you know, that are then taking that information and translating it into wise action that are up, is actually people out there to, to help people. And so, you know, in in the midst of COVID and all the turmoil, you know, in the world today, it is, I think, important to remember that, you know, we have things that are really working, and uh, I'm glad to be part of one of those. You have had a lot of success in the last 20 years to improve resources to combat food insecurity. Where do things need to grow in the next 20 years to fight food insecurity, especially in the context of climate change? You know even though I think we're doing a better and better job at um, responding to food insecurity, you know, overall levels of food insecurity, you know, have more than doubled since 2015. Well, we're now looking at maybe 105 million really food insecure people next year. And, you know, we need to get better 
at trying to solve the root problems of, of food insecurity. And, you know, the same information products that we can use to target food aid, humanitarian assistance, we can also um, use to uh, improve the agricultural practices. You know, so for, for example, uh, we can use the same kind of, you know, if we think that climate change is making, you know, Indo-Pacific future temperatures, you know, more volatile, giving us opportunities for prediction, um, we can use that information to, to really uh, tell a farmer in Eastern Africa, hey, I think this fall, you're almost certain to get normal to above normal rain. So, you know, you might want to use that information to, you know, buy some more fertilizer, invest more in better seeds, you know, and, and maybe double your yield this season. Um, and we're working with groups like Plant Village from Pennsylvania State University to take our, our chirps data and our weather forecast and, uh, you know, then those get translated into agricultural advisories, which then in turn, you know, are being sent out by SMS messages to hundreds of thousands of farmers in Kenya, um, and then sent out also over television shows to, you know, I think more than 9 million Kenyans. And, and so I think looking for those opportunities to use all these exactly the same data sets, but in, in proactive ways that uh, allow pastoralists and farmers to, to manage their risks more effectively, I think is the next big challenge. It's really um, sometimes overwhelming, you know, when we think about climate change. And it can be really empowering, however, to realize that, that climate change, quote unquote, you know, is pretty much manifested by a, a set of extreme events. So, you know, if, if temperatures are going up, that's of course concerning, but we have a, a really good capability to predict, you know, when we're going to get daily temperature extremes. And, you know, we can use that information to try to develop early warning systems to respond to those. You know, so for example, if you go to the, I, I was looking at the India uh, Meteorological Department's website yesterday, and they have really, you know, pretty well developed, you know, extreme temperature forecasting systems. And, you know, climate change can be managed. Those risks can be responded to. And so, you know, I think uh, at the intersection of, you know, meteorology and climate science and early warning systems, there's going to be a lot of opportunities for interaction and, and innovation where we can really make a big difference. Thank you again for joining us on today's podcast.